Well, a while back, I, I mentioned in a sermon that um, I hadn't read a Stephen King novel. Uh, it actually occurred to me that I have, um, but it wasn't one of his horror stories. It's a short story called Rita Hayworth and the Shawshank Redemption. And it's about an innocent man, Andy Dufresne, who um, ends up in, in prison for a long sentence. And uh, while he's there, his love of knowledge uh, is, causes him to want to share this with other people and uh, to better himself and the other prisoners. And so he works in the library, and the library just has a couple of books. And so he decides that he wants to increase the library um, and expand it. He wants to request funds. Um, so his fellow librarian advises him, son, six wardens have been through here in my tenure, and I've learned one immutable universal truth. Not one of them born whose wallet wouldn't pucker up tighter than a snare drum when you ask them for funds. And Andy then goes ahead and asks the warden anyway, Warden Norton, and this is the dialogue that follows. The warden says, not a dime, my budget's stretched thin as it is. And he says, I see, perhaps I could write to the state senate and request funds directly from them. The warden, far as them Republican boys in Augusta are concerned, there's only three ways to spend a taxpayer's hard-earned money when it comes to prisons. More walls, more bars, and more guards. And he says, still, I'd like to try with your permission. I'll send a letter a week. They can't ignore me forever. They sure can. But you write your letters if it makes you happy. I'll even mail them for you. How's that? Six years later, Andy gets a letter from the Senate. And it says, Dear Mr. Dufresne, in response to your repeated inquiries, the state Senate has allocated the enclosed funds for your library project. And he's stunned and he examines the check and he says, This is $200. In addition, the library district has generously responded with a charitable donation of used books and sundries. We trust this will fill your needs. We now consider the matter closed. Please stop sending us letters. Yours truly, the state comptroller's office. And Andy says, it only took six years. From now on, I'll send two letters a week instead of one. And he keeps doing this. Four years later, in 1959, the folks up at Augusta Way finally clued into the fact that they couldn't buy him off with just a $200 check. An appropriations committee voted an annual payment of $500 just to shut him up. And the moral of the story is, if them Republican boys in Augusta State Senate can be brought to the point of doing what's right at those, uh, for those at their mercy, then how much more will God hear us when we are persistent in our requests for prayers? So turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 11. This is after the Lord's Prayer. We've learned a lot of lessons going through the Lord's Prayer, one little step at a time. And now, at the end of the prayer, Jesus just starts telling a parable that is obviously applying what he's just taught his people. This is how you pray. Now, I want to teach you this le lesson. This is a parable that sometimes confuses people because in their minds, they, they um, confuse it with another parable that he tells about the persistent widow in chapter 18. This is not that parable. This is a different one. So we're going to look at that. We'll pick it up in verse 5. And he said to them, Which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, Do not bother me. The door is now shut, and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, 
Though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. And I tell you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be open to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? There you go. We're going to look at three points tonight into this parable. Three points uh, to unpack so that we will be encouraged to pray persistently. And we're going to just look at the parable itself. There's a, a, this reluctant response. The point of the parable is persistence in prayer. And then the purpose of the parable is to teach us the goodness of God. So firstly, let's look at the, the reluctant response. And we, we see it there, which of you has a friend that will go to him at midnight and he's asking for three loaves, and we just read that. So my question is, knock, knock. You say, who's there? And the answer is, it doesn't matter. It's midnight and I'm in bed. Go away. I mean, there is nothing worse than being woken up from a deep sleep. As we all experienced, when was it? Yesterday at 4 a.m.? When, when the tornado alert happened? Just a quick poll. How many of you locals actually go and sit in a closet when that happens? Just, okay, less than half of you. See, honey? The people that have been here the longest, they don't do that. They just go back to sleep. Yeah, anyway. Um, it's just hard. And then the rest of the day, you know, the kids are all crabby. At one, I'm not going to tell you which one. One of my kids, later that day at breakfast, this was such a great scene, literally said, holding a bowl of Cheerios. I got a fork and not a spoon. <laughs> it's like, it's okay, I'll go get you a spoon, you know. Everyone's just tired, everything was off, people were crabby. Why? Because we were awake for an hour sitting in a closet and um, twiddling our thumbs. So when, when someone knocks at your door and you're in a deep sleep and you got your kids, now you picture a room, that's, it's a house that's one room, and so everyone's got their little mat out there and the whole family's sleeping and there's tuck, tuck, tuck at the door. I mean, this, is, this means this guy's going to have to get up. He's going to have to put on his little oil lamp. He's going to have to go to the little kitchen area. He's going to have to find the basket, get the bread, bring out not one loaf. The guy's asking for three loaves. So you have to understand that this reluctant response is not that of a bad guy. The parable is, in, is being framed in such a way that you sympathize with the guy who's asleep. He's not the bad guy. That's why I don't want you to get confused with the parable of the persistent widow in Luke 18, where the person that the widow is asking help from is a judge. It's an unjust judge who doesn't want to give her justice, but she keeps persisting, nagging him, and eventually, just to get rid of her, he gives her justice. That's a different parable with a different point, which we will get to in seven chapters in seven years. Um, well, we're doing a decent chunk tonight. I know it took the Lord's Prayer. We did like two weeks and a half a verse, but we're getting there. So this is a major disruption. Verse 7, he says, Do not bother me. The door's now shut. My children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. And yet the request is honored. 
he does get up and he does give it to him. And Jesus says specifically, it's not because of the relationship. It's because of the audacity of the timing of the request. Look at verse 8. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. So, first, the impudence isn't a word that we use a lot. Um, your Bible might have a little footnote at the bottom, mine does, that says persistence. So just by the way, I thought I, thought I might as well mention this. If you have a Bible that has notes in it, or sometimes it's in the column on the side, and then there's little footnotes at the bottom, and so when you're reading, there's like little letters and little numbers. Um, it's good for you to drop your eyes down every once in a while and just see what that is, because it means the translators are saying, it could be this, it could be that. We've put this one in the text, but we also think that this other word is, is just as good. Um, and so in this case, for example, mine has notes, and it says there under impudence, there's a little footnote, um, number four, and you go down at the bottom, and in very tiny writing there, you have to kind of squint and see it. It says, or persistence. But there's even a better word for it. And it's not really listed in the dictionary, but let me just give you what the dictionary says. This is in the, the main Greek lexicon. The Greek word enidea means, quote, lack of sensitivity to what is proper. Carelessness about the good opinion of others. Shamelessness. Impertinence. Impudence. There's the word they use. Ignoring of convention. A fundamental cultural consideration in the Greco-Roman world, here with the focus on tradition of hospitality. So all that to say that it's a rich word, that's this um, anadean in, in the Greek, it's a rich word. In English, there isn't a direct correspondence, and that's why the translator goes with impudence or persistence. But there's more to it, isn't there? There's a, a shamelessness to this request. There's a boldness. There's an impertinence. Impertinence is like when a kid asks a question when it's not really their time. It's not appropriate for them to be interrupting. The adults are talking and the kid wants to chip in. That's an impertinent child. So there's like this, this boldness, this audacity. And I think that the best word to translate this, and you can see why they didn't do it because it's not even an English word, but there's a word in Yiddish that has also been used by in English. It's the word chutzpah. Have you heard that word? So usually we say chutzpah is when a person has, you know, grit, determination, gumption. That's chutzpah. But if you pronounce it slightly differently, chutzpah, that means audacity. And that is like, I cannot believe you had the chutzpah to ask me that question under the circumstance. It's like this, I can't, this is shamelessness. You should be embarrassed by yourself. I can't believe your audacity. That's what's being communicated here. That the guy, he's not helping him because they're friends. Right now, he just wants to kill his friend right, for waking him up at night. But he's going to help him because there's just something you can't ignore about the chutzpah of coming and waking up a whole family to give you some bread in the middle of the night. It's just, it's audacious. And that's the point of this parable. Yes, it's persistence, and I also called it persistence in prayer, knocking on heaven's door, persistence in prayer. But it's more than a, a, a persistence. It's an audacity. And what Jesus is going to teach us is that we need to have that kind of desperation, that kind of bold shamelessness of the types of things that we ask God for. We need chutzpah. Now, this man, 
who's asking, he's not being selfish. Jesus is careful in the parable to tell you why he's bugging this friend of his at night. It's because someone has come over and he doesn't have any food for the guy. And in the Greco-Roman world, hospitality was such an important thing, especially among Jewish people, they understood this, that you do whatever it takes to be hospitable, whatever it takes. And now your friend shows up in a long journey and they come in and they're like, oh, I'm so hungry and I haven't eaten all day. And you're like, well, I, we just had dinner. We don't have anything. Um, don't worry. I'm going to go talk to my neighbor. And the neighbor is like, I'm not getting up. Go away. And then the neighbor's like, man, he must really want that bread. To dare do that. To disrupt my whole family like a tornado alert. And my kid's going to be crying about the Cheerios and the fork tomorrow. Just based on how desperate this guy must be, I'm going to give him what he wants. That's, that's what's being communicated here. This audacity. So that's the point. We, that's the parable. We'll move to the second point here. The point of this parable is this impudence, this persistence. Because Jesus says in verse 9, And I tell you, so after the story, he's now driving the point home. I tell you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks, it will be opened. So the point Jesus is making here is that we all understand the concept that if you feel desperate enough, you will do whatever it takes. You're not going to go wake somebody up at midnight for three loaves of bread if it can wait. If it's just you're kind of peckish for a midnight snack, you know what, I'm just going to go to sleep and I'll deal with it in the morning. I'll have some breakfast or whatever. I'm not going to go wake up my neighbor and his whole family in the middle of the night just for feeling a little peckish. No, no, no. The reason I would do that means there must be something important. I want to do the right thing. I want to be hospitable. I'm willing to even embarrass myself with my neighbor and get in his debt over this issue. That's how we need to come to God. We know what it's like to feel desperate, that some need needs to be met. And so you would have no shame in asking for that if it was a true need. That's how we approach God. If you feel that it is urgent enough, there is no social convention that would stop you from asking someone for help. So why don't you ask God for help when something is urgent, if you have a need? If you feel that it's a real need, why wouldn't you knock on heaven's door? And this is an argument from the lesser to the greater. Jesus loved doing this. He paints a picture of what people are like, and then he says, God is so much better than this. You would do this among people if it was an urgent enough need. Why won't you do it for God? It's not like God sleeps. It's not like he's going to be like, oh, I've got to wake up all the angels now and answer your prayer. No, the, the, this is an easy thing to do compared to what this guy would do. And the answer is, the reason we wouldn't ask for what we need is sometimes we don't think it's urgent. We don't feel the need. We don't think it's urgent until it becomes urgent. We don't feel the need until we become desperate. That's when we pray. Have you ever been in that situation where there's something going on in your life and you're not praying about it? And then it gets so bad that you just get completely hopeless and you have, I have no idea how I'm going to deal with this. 
and then you pray, and then God answers. And you kind of ask yourself, well, why didn't I pray right in the beginning of the trial, and then I wouldn't, it wouldn't have got that desperate. But there's something about us that we wait until there's this desperation, and that's when we pray. You know, like your doctor tells you, hey, you need to lose some weight, otherwise it's not going to go well for you, you know, for your health. And you're like, okay, I'm, my doctor told me to lose some weight, so I'm going I'm to take the dog for a walk a couple of times a week. I'm going to lay off, I'm just going to have one donut a day and not three. You know, I'm, I'm doing my little part. And then next checkup, the doctor's like, you're now pre-diabetic. Oh, okay, well now I'm going to, you know, join CrossFit and go vegan. And, and then you'll actually see some results, right? Well, you're not going to do that with the first time that you get the warning because it eh, doesn't feel that urgent. It's just kind of like it's out there. But then when it becomes urgent, well, this is something I'm going to avoid, that's when you go all in and that's when you see results. It's the same with our prayer life. Sometimes we pray like, yeah, Lord, can you, you know, help this person with this trial they're going through? Yeah, can you save that person? Can you help me with this situation with my boss at work? Or, Lord, can you provide this thing that I need? Or please help my kids to walk with you more or whatever it is. And, and you're not really, you're not really into it. You're just kind of cutting down donuts from three to one. And then you your kid goes through something. They're making a terrible decision that's going to ruin the rest of their lives. That's when you pray. That's when you fast. That's when you focus everything, and that's all you're praying about all day long. You know, you pray about this situation at work with the boss. You've got this bad boss or whatever, and help me. And then suddenly it becomes, well, hold on, I'm going to get fired now. Oh, now I'm going to pray. Now, it's, now I'm sharing it at Bible study, and I'm asking my friends, and Please pray with me. Like, now I'm serious. Well, why weren't you serious before? Well, it wasn't urgent enough. So I wonder if it's even worth praying about then. I mean, if you, if you, if you really want something from, from God, you need to come to him with chutzpah, with audacity, with boldness, with urgency, with, with persistence. I'm willing to wake him up at midnight to get what I need. And if you're not willing to do that, is it really a prayer that you're into? Is it really a prayer that you care about? And the reason I ask that is because so many Christians are like, yeah, I've been praying for this thing for so many years and God doesn't answer. It's like, well, ha you know, have you really, though? How have you been praying for it? It's one of those things on the list that you kind of just shoot through or when you think of it or as you're falling asleep or while you're driving. Or is this one of those prayers where you're like, I'm going to drop everything and fast and come before the Lord and beg him for this thing? And when the trial gets painful enough, we pray more fervently. And I think the reason is this. I think that's when we become humble. It's when you're humble that you pray your best prayers. And that's, what, that's what's happening with this guy. He's coming at midnight to wake him up. There's a shamelessness, there's an audacity, there's a boldness, there's a chutzpah, because who would do such a thing unless they were desperate? Unless the trial was weighing on them enough. It's humbling to have to do that, to have to ask for that kind of help. You know, in Second Chronicles chapter 7, it says that Yahweh appeared to Solomon. Verse 12, 2 Chronicles 7, verse 12. Yahweh appeared to Solomon, the king, in the night and said to him, 
I've heard your prayer and have chosen this place, the place where the temple was to be built, for myself as a house of sacrifice. When I shut up the heavens so that there's no rain, or command the locust to devour the land, or send pestilence among my people, if my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and heal their land. Now my eyes will be open and my ears attentive to the prayer that is made in this place. Interesting that God doesn't just say, now there's going to be this house of prayer and I'm going to hear all these prayers all the time. Which, of course, he would. But he, he paints this picture of when they're going to really want to use this house of prayer. When is it? When there's no rain. And when the locusts come. When there's trouble. And when they humble themselves and realize they can't do this on their own. And when they come and they're humble, I'm going to listen to them. It's an interesting principle. Have you ever, remember when you were a kid, maybe, and you asked for something for, for Christmas, and then you forgot that you asked for it, and then Christmas morning you're unwrapping, and you're like, oh, yeah, yeah, I asked for this. And it's like this expensive gift, and your parents are like, okay, so you weren't like waiting up for this gift? This is just, we could have not even given you that gift. You wouldn't even have realized we could have saved the money? You know, compare that with one of those gifts where you just, you know, you nag your parents from June. Like, every day, please can I have this, please can I have this. And they keep saying Christmas, Christmas. And then you just keep asking, Christmas is coming, Christmas is coming. You keep asking, you keep asking. Those are two different, those are two different approaches. Which gift do you think you appreciate more? This is the one that you begged your parents for over and over and over. So there's something about the act of asking for something repeatedly, audaciously, shamelessly, desperately, that makes you appreciate the answer more than a casual request. There's so many things that I've prayed in my life just casually that the Lord gave me that I didn't even bother to say thank you for. I barely noticed that he gave it to me. I prayed for daily bread today. I mean, what was saying thanks over your meal like? Was it an honest response to thank God for answering your prayer for daily bread? Or was it just something that you do so that you can get to the food? Oh yeah, we're supposed to pray. Hold on. Uh, dear God, please bless this food. Amen. You know, or is this, wow, God answered my prayer. That's different if you, you know, the supermarkets all shut down because of COVID and you think, where am I going to get my next meal from? We're going to beg God to provide for our family. And then you go and you find, hey, I've got some yeast in the pantry and we're going to make some bread. This is the best bread ever. You know, those are two different scenarios. The more desperate you are, the more you appreciate the gift that you've been begging God for. So that's the point of this parable. Thirdly, there's a purpose behind this. Jesus is teaching us something about God the Father, that he's good. Look at verse 11. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish, give him a serpent. Or if you ask for an egg, we'll give him a scorpion. Such an interesting question, isn't it? Your son's hungry. Dad, can I have a can of tuna? 
here's a can of scorpions. <laughs> You're like, what? No, I wouldn't even know where to get one of those. <laughs> I'm like, no, you wouldn't do that. Dad, I'm, I'm hungry. Can we have some eggs for breakfast? Here's a rock I found in the garden. Suck on that. It's like, no, obviously none of us would ever be that heartless. That's just not the heart that you have for your children. If you couldn't give them what they wanted, there would be a reason behind that. But you wouldn't deliberately give them something bad. You want to fish? Here's a scorpion. See how that goes. You just wouldn't do that. And then, so, then Jesus drives us home. After asking in verse 13, if you then, who obviously, you know, the implied answer is none of us would ever do such a heartless thing. If you then, who are evil, you people, and I love how Jesus just throws it out there. He's got no problem. You people being evil, you know, like he just assumes we're all going to agree, yeah, we're pretty evil. Whereas these days, you can't really say that to people. I mean, imagine that. You address the people at your work. You're giving a PowerPoint presentation. Okay, you people being evil, you know how this, you know, you wouldn't say that. People would be like, what? But Jesus just throws it out there. You then, you're evil. And you know how to give good, which is the opposite of evil, good gifts to your children. How much more? There's the lesser to the greater argument again. How much more will the heavenly father, you're, you know, you're a bad father compared to him, the heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Now, that's, that's interesting. Whatever you're asking for, the Holy Spirit is the best thing to get. Him being sent to you and what he can give you and how he can guide you and he can seal you and regenerate you and lead you and, and, and cause you to be sanctified. That's the highest good. And anything that's happening in your life that causes you to lean on the Spirit and need the Spirit and be guided by the Spirit and be, be sanctified by the Spirit is good for you. It's not bad. And so the, the, the point here and the purpose of Jesus teaching this parable is that God is not like the reluctant friend. He's not a heartless father. That none of us would even be that bad. He is a good God. And so he, we humans understand the power of persistence to, to wear down somebody who's reluctant to help us. But God is not like that. He's so much better. He doesn't sleep. He's not reluctant. He's eager to respond. So that prompts us to ask the question then. Well, why are my prayers not being answered? I mean, some of them are, which is wonderful, but some of them are not. What's going on with that? Why do I ask God to save this loved one and then he just doesn't? Why did I ask God to provide me for this wonderful opportunity where I'd be able to uh, do work that would be really meaningful and so much better than the situation I'm in and he gave that job or that promotion to someone else who is not even a believer? Didn't, did he not hear me? What's going on with that? Well, these questions, what father among you, if he asks for a fish, would instead give him a serpent? These are rhetorical questions that everyone knows the answer is, well, no one would do that. None of us would do that. And so if God is better, a better parent than we are, and we're asking for something, and he's giving us something, what we know about that is the something he's giving us, it's not bad. It's not bad. 
We know, that we know enough about God to know He's not like that. So therefore, whatever you're getting when you pray, that's what's good for you. That's what God wants to give you, is what's good for you. So you need to keep praying. How do you pray? Well, you pray the Lord's Prayer. That's, this is the context. Pray for His name to be praised, for His purposes to be done. That's the umbrella motive, remember that? For His glory, for His name to be hallowed. See, when you're praying for something and you're thinking, I want something for me, and you're, you're completely ignoring what's best for the, the hallowing of God's name, the rev, reverence of His name, the spread of His fame and His glory, then you're praying at odds with what Jesus just taught you. This world isn't about you. God's not just like a vending machine that we each get when we become Christians. And when you want something, you just go and you pop in your little prayer and you get your little whatever it is you want. That's, not how, that's, that's just not taught in the Bible. That's taught out there in the world. What good is having a God if he doesn't answer your prayers? What we learn about God is, no, he does everything for his glory. And you being saved, you get plugged into that mission. And so as you're praying in line with that mission, he's answering your prayers. But if you pray for yourself now as if you're the center of the universe, I mean, that's not even a prayer. What is that? That's not how you were taught to pray. Pray for his name to be praised. Pray for his spiritual kingdom to come, for, the, for the, this kingdom work to be done in the lives of individuals as they grow into Christ-likeness and into the spread of the kingdom as more and more people get saved. So your response in a situation can help save somebody as a, as a witness to them. Your response to a difficult situation gives God glory. Your response to a difficult situation makes you more like Christ. And so the kingdom is spreading in your life because it's going down in depth. And it may be spreading to other people as well. So that's how we should be praying in line with those things. Pray for your needs to be met, for your daily bread, the, the, your essential needs. Remember we looked at that? That's what that daily bread means, the bread of essence. What you actually need, if you have an actual need, God loves to answer those needs. Make sure that's what you're praying for. And your actual needs include forgiveness. Contingent, of course, on the fact that you're saved, which means you're a forgiving person to others. We saw that. So your forgiveness, your daily bread, and then help in navigating the minefield of temptation that we live in. That's what you're praying for. Those are your needs. You need to be led out of temptation. You need your actual needs met, your daily bread. You need your spiritual needs met, um, not only avoiding temptation, but getting forgiveness and being the type of person that forgives. And you're praying those types of things in the midst of your needs, your difficulties, your trials. God's not going to say no to that. Then you're asking for a fish. And he's going to give you a fish. But you start asking for something that's bad for you. He's not going to give you that because you wouldn't even do that. Your kid comes and says, Dad, can I eat some live scorpions for breakfast? No, son, don't be silly. That's going to hurt you. I mean, of course, kids don't ask that. What they ask is, Dad, can I have a donut for every meal for the rest of my life? Same thing. <laughs> no, that's bad for you. I'm not saying no because I hate you. I'm saying no because I love you. I'm going to give you what's good. So here's some fish and here's some egg. I hate fish. It doesn't matter. It's what's good for you, right? So in the same way, when you're getting something from God, don't slap his hand away and say, yuck, I don't like that. You need to realize he knows what's best for you and he loves you and he's good and he's listening to your prayers and he's answering 
your prayers as they fit into the grand scheme of everything that he's answering of all the prayers of his whole plan to give himself glory, which is what's best for you. So orient yourself towards him and his will, and your prayers will be answered. And the more you pray like that, and the more you line your prayers up with God's will, the more you see and notice the prayers being answered. That's why James 4 verse 2 says, You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your own passion. That's James 4, 2 and 3. That happens a lot. Why is God saying no to my prayer? Because you're asking wrongly. You're asking for yourself and your own passions and your own things that are not good for you and you're not getting an answer. There's no promise in the Bible that you're going to get whatever you ask for. There is a promise where Jesus says anything that you ask for, what? In my name, yeah. The Father will give you. What does it mean to ask in Jesus' name? Does it mean, Lord, please give me a Ferrari in Jesus' name? Where is it? Where is it? I said in Jesus' name. Where is it? That's the magic word, right? Abracadabra, hocus pocus, in Jesus' name, whatever. What must I say? No, that's not the point. If you're praying something in Jesus' name, it means according to his reputation, according to his desires, his agenda, his wish for you, his will for the world, who he is, what he's done, that you're one of his children, that you're doing it for him. That's what it means to ask for something in his name. And so that's how we must pray, and that's what this whole parable is all about. You know, Andy Dufresne, um, if you read the rest of the, the story, he ends up escaping from this prison by chipping away at, the, at his prison wall, and he, he just chips a little bit, little bit, little bit over years and years and years, just persistently, just constantly, like a little tap, 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 until eventually he has a hole that is the shape and the size that he can fit through and lets him crawl to freedom. You know, it's a, it's a good picture to keep in mind of when you're praying, you're praying, you're, you're chipping away. You just need to be persistent. You just need to keep praying until your prayers conform to the shape of God's desire for you so that you can kind of, you know, crawl through, as it were, to get what God actually wants for you. You've got to conform your prayers to the shape of what God wants for you. And sometimes it's obvious what God wants for you, and sometimes it's not. And that's why you need to be persistent and not give up praying. You need to chip away at it because it's in the, the chipping away and that persistence and that knocking at heaven's door that you, things start changing. The shape of what you're praying for starts changing. And God starts changing your desires and he brings you a place that what you're praying sounds different after doing it for many weeks, months, years even than it did when you first started. And that's how you know that you're maturing and your prayers are maturing and they're lining up more and more with God's will. And then when they're answered, it's always easier to look back and, and look at the shape of the prayer now and say, now I understand why God's answering the prayer because look at what I'm praying. And that's what we learn about the parable of the man knocking on the door. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this reminder and invitation to knock on heaven's door with our needs, knowing that you are a good God, knowing that you are so much better than even the best of parents. And we know what to do that's good for our children, so how much more do you know what is good for us? 
And so I pray, Lord, that you'd help us to be a people that trust you and that we would keep praying things that we know line up with your will, that we would not grow weary of praying for those things. We pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen. And we have some time for Q&A. Any questions? Charlie, thank you. Forgiveness for him. Okay, yeah, great, great question. Okay, so let me just summarize. Um, a few weeks ago, we were talking about forgiveness. Uh, forgive us our debts as we forgive those who are indebted to us. And I made the comment that um, you, can't, you can't complete a transaction of forgiveness without both parties. You can be willing to forgive, but forgiveness is a transaction in the same way that God doesn't forgive the whole world and everyone goes to heaven no matter what. It's the people who ask him for forgiveness and reconcile with him through the blood of Jesus that end up forgiven and reconciled. But God is willing to forgive anybody who turns to him. And in the same way, we were to forgive as God does. And so I made that point that um, you can be willing to forgive a person. Um, and, and as far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men, Paul says. And so in that situation, sometimes people just don't ask you for forgiveness and there's really nothing you can do about that. But you, you don't have bitterness. You're not holding it against them. You've moved on. And then we used as a few examples um, where people were not asking forgiveness. Jesus being crucified, prays, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they do. And then we, we see an example of one of the centurions, the Romans, um, confessing Christ after that. It would be an example of someone who just got forgiven through repentance, you know. And then Stephen prays that God forgive these people that are killing him. Um, and we see one of them who's standing there who's approving of the soul ends up being saved and repenting and turning and being forgiven of that. So you can pray for someone's forgiveness. That's how it is, though. The person still needs to ask your forgiveness. It's not that you pray for forgiveness. Now they're forgiven whether they ask it or not. In those cases, we see both of those. Okay, so now, um, so that's just summarizing for the camera. Um, now you're going to 2 Timothy 4, and you use the example in verse 16. At my first defense, Paul says, no one came to stand by me. He means now when he was on trial. Um, but all deserted me. And then he says, may it not be charged against them, but the Lord stood by me and strengthened me. So he's, his point there is, he's, it's, it's a little bit of a jab at whoever reads this letter. You guys all abandoned me when the cops came and I was, a jail, I was on trial and there was no one sitting there cheering for me because you were all afraid that you'd get arrested. May that not be charged against them. I don't want, I'm, not holding it, I'm not holding it against them. I don't want anyone else to hold it against them. Um, whether or not that's a sin is even debatable. I mean, you don't have to go and 
support somebody at their trial if, you know, if you're guarding your safety or the safety of your family or that. But his point there, I think, is that he, I'm not holding any grudges. I don't want them to have to suffer for this. But your question is really from, that's just after verse 14. He says, Alexander, the coppersmith, did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Beware of him yourself, for he strongly opposed our message. And so I think your question is, well, Paul's not asking this guy, um, asking God to forgive him. He's asking God to not hold against his friends who deserted him at his trial. And I think that that, I mean, I, th I think that those are just two different issues here. This one is that if somebody offends me, um, sins against me, hurts me, treats me poorly in some way, it's a sign of great maturity that I don't want any repercussions for them. I just want, I'm not going to hold it against them. I don't want God to hold that against them. I'm fine with me and the Lord. I'm willing to forgive anyone who's transgressed against me. That's a, that's a good, healthy Christian attitude to have. What Alexander the coppersmith was doing was opposing the message of the gospel that Paul was teaching to the Corinthians and was hindering his ministry. So there's, it's almost, there's two different things going on. I think we're going to learn about this in a sermon coming up um, on Sunday night, I think. The, where if, if someone does something to you, you, you can't even get angry about that. But if, something, if somebody's attacking the glory of God or the innocent, the, the vulnerable, the flock of God, that's a different story. So we're not asked to just overlook the sins and the crimes of people that are hurting the innocent and thwarting the gospel. And in fact, what Paul does there is called an imprecatory prayer. He's praying that God would um, repay him according to his deeds, that God will step in and judge this guy for being a hindrance to the church. And I think that both of those are godly responses that can exist in the same person as we see, we see it here with Paul. When you offend me, I'll just let it go. But you start attacking the church and thwarting the gospel and trying to get people to go to hell instead of heaven, I hope that God smites you on the spot. And I'll pray that too. You know, those are two different things. Does that make sense? Yeah, so well, we see a better example of that in um, Acts chapter 16, I think it is, where um, the silver workers who were making idols, and then they were selling these idols, and they were using the idols, and um, Paul is now preaching against idols, and people are getting saved, so their business is going down, so they try to get rid of Paul. I, it's possible that Alexander was part of that because it calls him the coppersmith. I don't think we should read too much into that. Like, we don't know why Alexander was opposing Paul. It may well have been because he was an idol maker in town and now he was losing business and he's trying to stop this gospel thing catching on. But um, it doesn't say. It just says that he did me much harm. Beware of him yourself for he strongly opposed our message. So he's, I think he's just identifying him. Not Because if he just said, beware of Alexander, poor little Alexander in the front's like, what? What did I do? It's like, no, 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 Alexander the coppersmith. Okay, good. <laughs> you know, like just be labeling the guy specifically. That's all I think is happening there. Good question. Yes, Zach. Yeah, so, 
Yeah, so uh, Hebrews 5 talks about Jesus um, uh, learning obedience through the things that he suffered. And then in, what was the next chapter you mentioned? In chapter 13, it talks about Jesus being changeless. And also you're, you're referring to, I mentioned that in the sermon on Sunday, and then also when we were reading from Luke, the last verse of Luke chapter 2, I always forget that number, I think it's 52 or whatever it is, 51 or 52, it says that the, the child, the 12-year-old boy, Jesus, grew in stature and wisdom and favor with God and men. So there seems to be, not only is he growing physically, but he's growing in his wisdom, um, and yet he's called changeless. Okay, that's a good question. I think it boils down to the, um, the, the understanding of the two natures of Christ and the hypostatic union, like where Jesus is fully God, 100% divine. He doesn't give up any of his divinity. He doesn't give up any of his um, divine attributes. At the same time, he takes on a second nature in his incarnation at the time of his conception, which he has for eternity now. And in that second nature, he has a human nature. And so there's certain aspects of the human nature, they're not sinful, but they are limiting and, and they're referred to as weaknesses in Scripture and that he, we, he sympathizes with us in our weakness, he understands that. So those two things, it's hard for us to get our mind around them, but you have to remember it's, it's not that he flips between one and the other, he's both at the same time. So you can say that Jesus was omniscient and that he knew all things, and you can say that confidently because he's God and God is omniscient and knows all things. At the same time, you can say Jesus didn't know when he would return because he says that. Not even the Son of Man knows when he's going to return for the second coming. And the Bible has no problem putting those two next to each other, so neither should we. And so in the same way, you know, uh, Yahweh never sleeps nor slumbers, but Jesus slept in the boat, you know. So his human nature is functioning simultaneously with his divine nature. And I think that that's the case of what's happening there in Hebrews. Is in Hebrews, it talks about him learning obedience through the things that he suffered um, in his humanity. At the same time, he's, he's the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. He's the unchanging, immutable God in his divine nature. And as long as you don't think of him giving up some of his divinity at times and taking it back up, but you can keep in your mind that both are functioning at the same time, um, then you're, you're safe. Because in Trinitarian things, if you say the wrong thing, they burn you. <laughs> right. Does that answer your question? Follow-up. Follow up. When am I going to preach through Hebrews? <laughs> Last. <laughs> Last, yes. I had, there's lots of books. And, um, uh, you know, Scott Pasolo preached through Hebrews and Steve Lawson preached through Hebrews and... Both of those were mistakes, I think. Um, no, I'm, not, I'm, I'm just joking. I'm just joking. Not mistakes. But it is the hardest book to preach through, in my personal opinion. And so that's the one you want to do last. Uh, once you've done everything else and you've mastered the whole Bible, then you go to Hebrews, you know. Um, and I'll give you an example of who taught me that. John MacArthur taught me that because he preached Hebrews early in his ministry, wrote a commentary on Hebrews, and then later realized that he got it wrong re-preached Hebrews, and there's a second edition of the commentary out that contradicts the first edition. And so if you can find that first edition, it's a very valuable piece um, for your collection because it's nice to have the first and second next to each other with the highlighted passages like, he changed his mind. Um, and the reason he changed his mind is because he knew more because he had preached more. So yeah, I'm not going to be preaching Hebrews anytime soon. My, I really want to get to um, Acts, and then I want to get to Romans at some point. Those are the two, Mont Blanc and Everest for me. 
Uh, and then Revelation, I love Revelation. And then Hebrews, just before I die. <laughs> Good, any other questions? Yes. Uh, Genesis 6, 6, it talks about um, God regretting that he made man and looking at that through the lens of sovereignty. <sighs> so I always sigh when someone asks me that question for a reason. The Hebrew word nacham means to sigh. It also is referred to what God does when he changes his mind. Isn't that interesting? Um, and then I always sigh because I'm like... Yeah, it's a hard question. But there's a few places in Scripture where it says that God changed his mind. In that one, it says he regretted that he made man. Um, there's one where uh, he's going to smite the people and Moses prays. And then he changes it. It says God repented of what he was going to do or relented. Um, changed his mind is used. So there's a few places like that. Um, and the, the word naham, meaning to sigh there in that regret, is like a sense of a sadness. Uh, disappointment and we must remember that God has emotions even though he's immutable um, and emotions are not sinful in and of themselves and so he he feels those things and there's a lot of places as well in scripture where there's anthropomorphism which means that there's language used to describe God in terms that um, to, to just uh, communication terms like it talks about God having his eyes roaming but his spirit doesn't have eyes you know um, and also anthropopathisms, which are uh, figures of speech that use human um, terminology for emotions to refer to God. So some of it can be explained with that. But uh, as far as sovereignty is concerned, I don't have any problem seeing that, okay, God knows the future. He knew this was going to happen. He's in control of it happening. It happens. He still doesn't like that it happened. And so he expresses that. I regret that I made man. Just like Jesus you know, knew that Lazarus was going to be raised from, he knew Lazarus was going to die, he knew he was going to raise him from the dead, and he gets there, and he's about to raise him from the dead, and then he weeps. Well, I mean, you wouldn't weep if you knew you, the guy wasn't going to be dead in five minutes, but he, he wept. Why? Because he's, he's got emotions. That's what happens with emotions, yeah. So, I don't know. That's kind of a messy answer for that. I've actually preached a sermon on it, which is a little bit more outlined and I'll, I'm sure we'll handle it again but that's, that's a good question.